Welcome to Conscious Curiosity SD, the podcast that provides the backstory of local successful San Diego leaders who bring hope, inspiration, and purpose to the work they do and the people they lead. Conscious Curiosity is sponsored by Conscious Capitalism San Diego and the Better Business Bureau of San Diego. And I'm your host, Jeff Blanton from Jailbreak Leadership. We'll hear from leaders who prove businesses can positively change the communities we work and live in by seeking a higher purpose beyond profit. We'll explore why they have come to lead in this way, the rewards and challenges of being a conscious leader, and their vision for the future of their businesses and the community of San Diego. Today, we have a very distinguished guest whose name may be very familiar to you, Barbara Bree. Barbara, welcome to Conscious Curiosity. Thank you for inviting me here today. Barbara has a very diverse career, both as a business leader and politician. Barbara spent more than 30 years helping to grow the San Diego innovation economy, starting with the serving as the Associate Director of Connect and has held various managerial roles for successful startups. Currently, she serves as the Chief Financial Officer of Blackbird Ventures. On the side, she's also the founder of three organizations that empower women. Run Women Run to elect more San Diego women to office, Athena San Diego to empower women in the innovation economy, and the Workplace Equity and Civility Initiative that addresses pay and equity and sexual harassment. On the public side, Barbara served on the San Diego City Council, ran for mayor in 2020, and is currently running for the Office of County Assessor. And this is just part of what Barbara's done in her career. Barbara, you're one busy lady. I've had a lot of years to uh, do all these many things. And uh, one of the key things I learned from my mom, Adelaide Bree, who is my role model, is that life has many chapters. You can't fit everything into one chapter. And uh, you can continue reinventing yourself over and over again. It's kind of like writing a book, right? Multiple chapters. Yes. Well, what I'd like to do is start with the first chapter. <laughs> How the heck did you get here? How did this all start? You've been a, uh, a, a woman business leader for many years, uh, focusing on the kind of the venture side of thing, early early stage companies. How did that come to be? Because, you know, especially for women earlier on, I'm not sure there's probably that many people playing in that field back in the day. Well, I've had a very eclectic and diverse career, as you noted, and I'm going to go back to my mom, Adelaide Bree. So I, I always always awkward to say, you know, I was born and blah, blah, blah. But um, I grew up in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. Uh, my mother went to work full time at a job at a large Philadelphia ad agency where she was paid less than the comparable men and there was nothing she could do about it. Uh, she even had to get a male friend to co-sign on her mortgage, even though she could afford the mortgage based on her income. And my mom raised me to believe that I could succeed in the male-dominated world of business. And I graduated from Harvard Business School in 1976 at a time uh, very few women were getting an MBA anywhere. Because of my mom, it's why I've, I've spent a large part of my life starting organizations to empower women. There is one part of my career you missed is that I was a journalist uh, for oh, the first okay. eight years after graduating from business school. As I said, I've I haven't done things in the traditional way, and I often say I took the lowest paying job out of my class at Harvard Business School. I went to the Sacramento Bee, where I covered economic issues in state government when Jerry Brown was governor the first time. I then uh, 
worked for the LA Times for six years covering uh, economic issues in state government and housing, and then went into the, uh, ended up in the technology world. Draw to journalism coming out of Harvard. I mean, that, that's like you say, you kind of took a different path than most of your classmates. Why, why, yeah. why that? So I'd, I'd worked on my, my mother was a right. So my mother uh, went back to uh school when I was uh, in college and got a master's in psychology and then became a best-selling author of pop psychology books. And she'd always written, uh, she wrote, you know, freelance articles for many publications and then wrote a number of books uh, until she died in 1983. So I kind of grew up in a writing household and I worked for my college newspaper, my high school newspaper. I always loved journalism. You have a passion for that. Yeah, I really had a passion. And I actually only left journalism in 1984. I'd taken a leave of absence to be with my mother who had cancer of the pancreas. And after she died, I, I went back to work. At that time, I'm married. I have uh, a two-year-old daughter, wanted to have a second child. The hours of journalism were long, and you never knew exactly when you'd get to go home. I asked if I could work part-time. I was at the Los Angeles Times working here in San Diego, and they said no. And I said, I quit. That turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. It, it turned out that... Journalism, you know, went down the tube. It was a very, it's become a very difficult uh, profession. And I was very fortunate that my husband had a good income and we didn't need my income. And after I left, a neighbor, Buzz Woolley, who was a, one of the early venture capitalists here, called me up. I worked for him part-time reviewing business plans. And then a year later, he said, I'm retiring. And he introduced me to Mary Walshock and Bill Otterson, who were launching the Connect program at UCSD, which is how I ended up there with a whole, you know, chapter of my life that uh, I'm still in today. When one thing leads to another, yeah. right? I mean, as simple as that. Talk a little bit about that. You've been involved with Connect. You've been involved with VC activities. You actually have uh, taken managerial roles in some companies. Uh, give us a little highlights of that. What's that look like? Maybe give us an interesting story. Sure. So, um, this uh, 1993 January, my first marriage ends. I'm I'm working at Connect at the time. I'm earning money, but not enough to support my family. A year later, I meet my uh, second and last husband, Neil Centuria. Two years later, we start a software company together called Atcom, which pioneers high-speed internet access in hotel rooms. And our first product was uh, a kiosk that looked like a pyramid, a shelf with uh, the keyboard, and then the computer was inside and you could look at the screen. And we remotely controlled all the software from San Diego. And our first customers were telecom companies that put them in airports. And that morphed into software that allowed you to ha get the internet in a hotel room on your laptop, something you take for granted today. You, at that time, the hotel actually had to have a server. There was no, the cloud only had real clouds in it. Uh, so the hotel had to have a server running our software there was no Wi-Fi. You had to have an Ethernet cord, you may remember these days, that you would plug into your laptop. I mean, I still remember traveling with a laptop and taking the phone cord out of the wall and plugging it into my laptop and, had, and having to manually change my settings, uh, which our software uh, did automatically. You know, raising money, you know, was always, it's always a challenge. We uh, were fortunate that uh, a large venture firm and in New York named uh, Patrikoff did invest in us. 
But they turned us down two times before they said yes. Got to have some persistence. Yeah, so I asked, raise yeah, money. yeah. So <laughs> it was, it's, uh, one of my favorite sayings uh, is no is only a way station to yes. We sold the company successfully in October 99. Uh, and prior to the sale, I joined another startup, uh, proflowers.com, on day one as the vice president of marketing. So you've worked inside the companies, you've helped start the companies, mm-hmm. been across the whole the whole gamut of that. And it's a challenge. It's a very exciting space. The early company space is very exciting, but many challenges. Many challenges and, you know, a lot of ups and downs. You right. have to be willing to kind of be, kind of moderate the ups and downs and, you know, just just have an optimism that you're going to get through. And these, you know, we've done have worked out. Right. I mean, that's just, that's part of the deal. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's... Uh, we had uh, Caitlin Wagey in here, who's uh, an early investor type person and involved with uh, the Tech Coast Angels. And she goes, yeah, you're looking for that one in 10, right? That's, right. that's the big home run. And the rest, eh, some are okay and some just never quite make it. Yeah. I obviously can already understand a little bit why all the activities around some of the women organizations that you've done, but maybe explain that a little bit more. Like what are the different organizations? What were you trying to achieve with that? What problems did you see that man, just weren't being addressed and you had an opportunity to step in and make something happen? Yeah. So in 1989, I'm working at the Connect program, which was then based at UCSD. I noticed more women starting to come to our events, but still very, very few. And I think, wouldn't it be great to get all of us together in one room so we could share our personal and professional issues and challenges? And I didn't even have a name for it at the time. 10 to 20 women having lunch together in someone's boardroom. I remember Martha Dennis, who was one of the early telecom entrepreneurs in town, hosted us at her company. I remember Martha Dennis, who was one of the early telecom company entrepreneurs in town, hosted us in her conference room. Uh, Karen Klaus, who was at Hybertech, hosted us there. And we just would talk. And that evolved into Athena. And Athena is the goddess of wisdom and war. And I felt those were the kinds of attributes (laughs) that a woman needed to succeed in tech and biotech. So Athena uh, became a formal organization in the mid-90s. After When I was leaving Connect, I wanted it to become a formal organization. A group of us met for a year to develop the bylaws and the structure, uh, and it became a formal organization in the mid-1990s. And uh, still exists today, over 500 members. Holly Smithson is the CEO. She's phenomenal. And still working to empower women in tech and biotech and empower uh, the next generation. So I'm very proud that Athena know is thriving you know many many years after I started it by 2004 we had sold atcom and proflowers had gone public and I was thinking about the next chapter of my life and that's when I started to re-engage in local politics local and national politics with a focus on electing more women Uh, just sort of anecdotally and my Youngest Did daughter. you have intentions that you would get into the fray? I never <laughs> expected. That I was would. not the idea. I right? never expected I would nice, run. Nice. And I am a I am a Democrat. No, and I did support Hillary Clinton for president in two thousand eight. And my youngest daughter Rachel had just graduated from the University of Michigan and actually worked for the campaign after Hillary lost to Obama. Actually, Rachel worked uh, for the California for the Colorado Democratic Party uh, and the Obama campaign. And so that got me very engaged. And 
I'm looking at the amount of sexism in that campaign, both aimed at Hillary and at Sarah Palin, who was the, you know, the vice president nominee on the Republican side, and the media seemed more interested in their hair and their clothing than what they said, and that really bothered me. My life has always been about this community and what can I do here, so in the fall of 2008, I started Run Women Run as an organization to elect more pro-choice San Diego women to office, and it's a nonpartisan uh, can be any political party. The key is that you are qualified, of course, for the position for which you're running and that you are pro-choice. I had been on the Planned Parent board and this was very important to me. And with what, you know, I'll be, with what's going on in the world today, with, you know, a likely Supreme Court decision. As of yesterday. Yeah, a likely (laughs) Supreme, yeah, yeah. yeah, a likely Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade, which most Americans think Roe versus Wade um, according to most polls, think it's a, a very fair way to deal with abortion. So I start Run Women Run, and I get more involved in politics, you know, helping women here get elected. And So was that pretty much a local organization? It's a local organization. Okay. Okay. It's, a, it's only focused on San Diego women. You can be running for U.S. Senate if you, well, they actually endorse candidates all over the state if they're women. But they're really focused on San Diego, whether you're running for school board or Vista City Council or Vallecitos Water District. They're really focused on San Diego because there was nothing like that here Mm -hmm. to help San Diego women sort of get into the pipeline. So I got more involved in politics, met a lot of elected officials. And my daughter, Rachel, who'd worked for Hillary Clinton, was working. She worked after that campaign for the mayor in L.A. and the mayor in Chicago as a deputy press secretary. And in uh, 2000, late 2014, early 2015, she was home for vacation. And she, we were having a family dinner and just talking about local politics. And she had sort of kept track of what was going on here. And she knew that the District 1 council seat was going to be available in 2016. And she said, Mom, you need to run for public office. You need to run for city council. And I will come home and I will run your campaign. Oh, you can't, can't, yeah. you know, right? What are you going to say? Yeah. And uh, she did come home. Her fiancé later came. Uh, and they are now the parents of uh, twin boys who are 15 months old. So how, how lucky could I be? And I, I won and I got on the city council. That's a whole other story. Uh, But while I'm on the council, uh, the Harvey Weinstein, you know, sexual harassment, all that stuff, the Me Too movement, all of that starts to happen. And I think, what can we do in San Diego to address this? I called together the leaders of Athena, uh, Run Women Run, and the Lawyers Club, which is the Women's Bar Association in San Diego. And we sat around a conference table we talked about the sexual harassment issues that were you know, sort of forefront in the news. And then one of the women said, Barbara, it's not just about sexual harassment. It's also about pay equity. Or she said, it's more often pay inequity. If you're a woman, you're not getting paid the same as a man for a comparable so job. Back to your mom's yeah. story. Right? And, and actually <laughs> even me in certain jobs. But you know, on the city council, I was paid the same as the men. So that sort of came the Workplace Equity and Civility Initiative, which is now run by the Lawyers Club, uh, the Women's Bar Association. So you see something, there's a need, and you jump into action. I can't help myself, I think. (laughs) But I mean, but it's about trying to solve a larger problem. And and it's, 
kind of interesting how it's very rooted and your story, your original story with your mom and, and that. And so that's, that kind of ties into my view of the world when it comes to purpose, right? Purpose is this act of service that you just can't help yourself. I love that. Like, I, I see that. I can't help myself. I got to get into this. One of the things I'm very interested in, so you've been on the business side of the world and now you've um, in the politics and running for another office. Sometimes I feel like there's business and then there's government and there's churches and you got all these little silos all kind of doing their little thing here. So as you look at the world and being having played in both parties of business and government, I mean, what, what, what could we be doing differently? So in conscious capitalism and these kinds of ideas, it's really about getting out of your own little profit-driven, my world, me, 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 and thinking much bigger about all your stakeholders. So what's your thoughts there? I mean, what could we be doing way better as business people? Uh, you're absolutely correct in everything you've said. And one of my passions, so, of course, empowering women is one of my passions, my other passion is the STEM economy, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, empowering underrepresented communities to have access to those jobs. And here in San Diego, we know that tech and biotech are exploding. I mean, biotech first, uh, but now the technology world, you know, we have many companies that, you know, have valuations of over a billion dollars for years. You know, Qualcomm was like the only one, but now there's several and biotech is, the growth is exploding. I mean, all over the county, you know, Carlsbad, the UTC area, and now downtown, and I hope eventually uh, the South Bay too, because uh, I think we need to put the good jobs close to where people live. One of my passions is that. How do children from underrepresented communities get access to these jobs? And this is where I think business has a very important role to play, and I think it's just starting to step up and so what I want to see is businesses getting engaged with school children from the time they're young, a business perhaps adopting a school, a tech or biotech business, or a service business that's related to that area, and having interactions with those children from a young age so they understand the job opportunities that are available to them. I mean, when I grew up, I didn't know what the word software meant. I didn't know that there would be, or and many kids today probably don't understand what a software developer is or what cybersecurity is or what a, a researcher in a biotech lab does. And they need exposure to this from the time they're young so they'll understand why it's important to stay in school and what's available to them. Then as they get older, they need access to internships. And this is where business can really step up by providing internships uh, to these students. And since biotech and tech are going to have a bigger you know, state footprint downtown, a lot of the children who live south of eight will be easily able to take public transportation to get to these companies. This is where I want to see business stepping up. Well, it's kind of interesting to say that because we're, we're sitting here as business people mm -hmm. whining about, you know, trying to hire, right, right. Here, here during this uh, this crazy period that we're in. And we've got all these opportunities and we get this workforce, but we said, but they're not matching up. How does the business fit into that? I, I was talking to a, a friend who um, has a consulting firm for Salesforce, and he was sharing some really interesting statistics that they sent me an article where they're going to be hiring like some crazy number, like 2 million people <laughs> in like in the next couple of years, you know, which is mind boggling. But then he shared how they really have this whole program within Salesforce that you, me, anybody could go online and actually learn how to become an employee of Salesforce. They'll teach you. So kind of back to the old school apprentice programs. And that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, that's interesting that Salesforce is doing that. 
Well, they're and, very and, conscious. They're a very conscious and they're, company. And, and they're making, yeah, they are. I mean, I saw the CEO on the 60 Minutes segment where he had found out that women were not being paid the same as men for comparable positions, and he took immediate steps to fix that. He was embarrassed that he hadn't known. Uh, so, yes, they are a very forward-thinking company, and I think that's a wonderful idea. I think a lot of younger people need the physical interaction to go to a physical company or to participate on Zoom on something to be able to really get uh, the most out of an internship. While I was on the city council, I served on the board of the San Diego Workforce Partnership, which is a, a countywide effort that gets all the federal job trading money. And our workforce partnership here has also developed some very innovative programs. And it's a city county collaboration. So the policy board is always two members of the city council, two members of the board of supervisors and the head of the United Way. And then there's a larger employer board composed of you know, many employers all over the county. So they're doing, the workforce partnership is doing like an income share program where you can get a certificate at UCSD in a technical area that costs somewhere between ten dollars and $20,000. And you only pay back you can borrow the money and then you pay back based on your income up to only up to whatever you borrow. Oh, and you good. only start paying back if you earn at least 40000 a year. Rather than accumulating this huge student debt problem. Right. And these are certificate yeah. programs where you don't need a college degree. Uh, the Workforce Partnership's also doing programs with the community colleges. They're also doing programs to get underserved communities into tech uh, fields. And so this is a local... Um, resource that we have. And I know that getting internships, though, has been a challenge. So I want businesses to step up and do the internships. They actually can be run through the workforce partnerships so they can handle all the paperwork. So you speak to that. One of the things that strikes me, I think most people's careers often, you just end up some, down some path, right? I mean, like I have an engineering degree. I'm not sure how that totally happened. It was kind of the four worst years of my life. And the worst part is you get out, you're an engineer. Now you have to go be an engineer in life. So as kids, we get kind of put down some paths. And then we got to get this job. And someone says, oh, uh, I think go, go in the corner and go do this thing. And then you kind of start to do that. And you can be okay at it. And you can make some money. But you're never going to be a star, right? You never kind of matched up who you are to what the possibilities are out here kind of like a lot of what you're talking about would maybe help solve that problem if we could start to expose kids to what you know what really is out here what are all the different kinds of jobs because you could say well a salesperson but there's all kinds of different kinds of sales jobs right sure. some you could be a star in, and some you'd be a complete failure in so exposing our our kids to match up their skill set to what's needed would be amazing. So I would think that would be part of, how do you make that part of yeah, that? And I think also having kids realize that just because you do something, you know, you're a sale, work at salesforce.com for a few years, that doesn't mean you have to do it for the rest of your life. You know, often you know, this very diverse, eclectic career, which I think was unusual for my era, but I think it's going to become more the norm. And I think what's most important for um, all of us is that we continue learning. I'm sure you've obviously continued learning. You know, that's 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 the secret to success is that your brain, you know, is don't just stop. don't <laughs> stop. Did I know Excel growing up? No, because it didn't exist. Right. <laughs> so. But that's what happens sometimes. People get into this job and they're in there for 10, 15 years mm -hmm. and then it gets kind of fearful to leave. Like the world's yeah. almost passed you by. And that's that's yeah. that's a sad state there too as well. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, I mean, when you start, you're a technology person, I can't remember the exact statistics, but they speak to like 
the jobs five years from now, 60% of them don't even exist today that, you know, due to technology and what's going to be coming our way, which I think is another big, huge thing that we're just not paying that much attention to. Like, we really have to take not just students, but the 30-year-old, the 40-year-old. The what are you going to be doing for the rest of your life well, that's, that's when that why, job you've got goes away? Well, that's why continuing education is so important. And Connect, when it was initially started, was based at UCSD in Extension, which is the continuing education arm. And I think continuing education, you know, everywhere is just booming because people don't necessarily need another degree. They need to take a few classes here, a few classes there, maybe get a certificate, but uh, they've got to keep learning. I love your idea of let's, let's start touching the students at a younger age. It's, it helps solve a problem for the business folks as well because that becomes their future employees. How do you see from the government and business, and we start to think about some of the other social ills that we have in our community, like homelessness and some of these other issues. Could we p- be participating together in a better way to help solve some of those issues? Because, again, I see some companies will, okay, we'll put some money towards this or whatever, but it just seems like there's no great collaboration to say we could take the smartest and the brightest and really go solve this problem we wanted to. So yeah. how, how might we do that? Well, I think there is one local example, uh, which is called the Lucky Duck Foundation. Yes, I'm familiar I, with I that. I think Lucky Duck has been, um, you know, it really is a group of business people who pooled their resources to, in terms of philanthropy, help with the homeless situation and uh, trying to use metrics to determine what works, what doesn't work. So I think they're a good example uh, there also is a group called Catalyst, which is a group of funders who uh, you know, want to support homeless programs. I think one of the issues here is in San Diego is that there's, it's been, well, I've now I've been out of public office for almost two years, but when I was in public office, we, were ha- we really didn't have a central database and easy access to information. I'll share one personal story. So I, it was actually election day for the March primary, March 2020. And I was in the South Bay, and I was crossing a busy street. I was with my husband and a few other people. And a man walked up to me, and he said, I need help. I'm homeless. Uh, he explained that his sister had actually dropped him off, and he looked to be in his early 40s. Uh, his sister had dropped him off about a mile away. Uh, he had been living with her. He admitted he had alcohol problems, and he been violent. He admitted that. And he, he said, some bridges. <laughs> right. And he said, you know, his, he, his sister just couldn't deal with it anymore. So she had dropped him off and he wanted help. Uh, he didn't have a cell phone. I called 211, which I'm thinking that's where you call to find a shelter bed for him. And they kept putting me on hold to transfer and they couldn't help me. And I, you know, and at that point, I'm a member of the San Diego City. Call the uh, SDPD. The San Diego Police Department has a, lot, a hotline you can call, but you get voicemail. I call my chief of staff. I say, please, let's, this man really wants help. My husband's gone into the, there's, we're near a grocery store. My husband's gone into the grocery store to get him something to eat. And we're just sort of sitting on the grass. And uh, she uh, finds him a bed at the Alpha, at Alpha Projects uh, tent. And then it's how do we, are we going to get him there? Can I, am I allowed to call Lyft to get him there? What, or Uber or a taxi or whatever. It turns out the SDPD come to get him. We were very, uh, we warned him ahead. The police are coming. They're not going to put you in handcuffs. They're just going to take you to this safe place. Uh, so he was, he was fine. But remember, we're using policemen to take him. Right. It's sort of like, why? He gets there, and uh, I haven't had 
and been in touch with him for a while, but he did get a cell phone and he reached out to me uh, to let me know he was getting help and he was very appreciative. But why wasn't there a 24-hour number that a person answers and tells me where a shelter bed is available for an individual who wants it? I hope those issues are being addressed now. And we do need more options for homeless individuals less expensively than new construction. Yeah, I just kind of wonder, like, if, again, from a business perspective, I mean, that was a business problem that, let's say, had an ROI to it because we're capitalists. And there is an ROI. We yeah. just, it's maybe not the direct ROI we like, but it just seems like if we could get the right business minds around that, those kinds of problems could be solved. I mean, we have the ability to, to make those things happen, mm-hmm. but somehow we're, we're not seeing it. Question on the other side here, kind of maybe from, um, I don't know, I'm sure exactly you know how to ask the question, but so we got business, and I get a little frustrated when I kind of hear, like in Washington, and the lobbying and all the all the money that gets thrown in the government from the business sides to once again drive my personal initiative of my industry or my space, whatever. And sometimes I feel bad to say I'm a business guy when I hear those kinds of things. What what are, what are your thoughts there? I mean, how do we manage that in a little better way that says you know money has too much influence? I guess we overturn Citizens United. Citizens United, which is a Supreme Court decision uh, that basically has allowed corporations to put unlimited amounts of money into political campaigns. Just made it a free-for-all, yep. right? Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good answer. That's right. That is the, that is the problem, right? How, how we ever turn it back because now there's too much money that says, yeah, we can't, can't, make, can't make that, can't solve that problem. So what, what's your, you know, you're running for office again. What's your hopes and desires here for San Diego? What you, You've done a lot of things in business. You've done a lot of things to try to help uh, women and women leaders. Uh, you've been involved in politics, staying in politics, running for your next office. Help us understand, what's, what's the future? Where, where are we going with all this, Barbara? I guess you could say, Barbara, why are you running for office again? <laughs> I thought, yeah, and, that, and, and, that and would I, be the easy question. I, I could have said it the easy way. Right? Well, I'll <laughs> say that. For, I'll answer that one first. So I, you know, I ran for mayor and I lost. You know, you're always sorry you didn't win, but I, and people ask me why I ran for mayor, because at that time I could have run for a second term on the city council, which I probably would have gotten fairly easily. I'm an executive. I've been in the technology world. I saw the large number of problems at City Hall. Remember, I was the first elected official to call out the 101 Ash Street fiasco. It had been purchased before I joined the council. I either wanted to be the mayor or do something else because I've tried to live my life without regrets. And if I hadn't run, I would have always said, what if? So I ran, I lost. And during the process of running, I met wonderful new people. I learned more about the city. I went places I'd never been. I mean, so every part of my life, even my some of my the business failures have always resulted in something good. So I'm glad I ran for mayor. I went on to do other things, you know, went back to the technology world, and my husband and I wrote a book. It's going to be published in August. Uh, I could talk about that after this. And then in August, uh, last August, my phone started ringing, and it was Democrats, many of whom had not supported me for mayor, encouraging me to run for county assessor, recorder, county clerk. And this is an office that has been under the radar, but is very, very important in making sure that we collect the right amount of property taxes. And last year, about $7.6 billion. So this is the money that funds education and public services. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. 
what's very important that this office get right is getting new construction onto the property tax rolls as quickly as possible. So when you have an empty piece of land, it's worth a dollar. But then you put a hotel on the land. Is it worth $8 or $9 or $10? So assessor has to send out an appraiser to determine the new value for property taxes. And what we have found is that this does not always happen as quickly as it should. Now, eventually we can get the money because there's something called escape assessments. You can go back, but it's much more complicated. It's much easier if you can get it on the front end. So if the hotel is done in September, it's easier if you can, within a few months, have the new appraised value of that property. It's an office with a budget of 75 million, 400 employees. I have talked to a number of the employees. I think there are some workplace issues. And I think my business and technology background are very suited uh, to running this office, bringing them into the 21st century with a new website, new technology, and making sure that it provides excellent customer service, whether it's online, over the phone, or in person. Uh, this office also manages uh, marriage, birth, and death certificates, uh, performs marriages. You can get married uh, at the county and also uh, things related to business uh, registration, fictitious business names. So you see a big problem. As historically you've always done, so let me jump in. I want to do something new. I want to do something different. Only makes sense. When we're kind of coming to the end of our, uh, our interview, What's the big thought? What's the big idea you have? What, what do you want people to walk away with, Barbara? My mother's one of my role models. Another role model is the anthropologist Margaret Mead. And she had a quote, has been a, a guiding force in my life. And so I will read it. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Nice. There you go. That's a good mantra to live by. Well, Barbara, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to come in. You're, you're an amazing person. I hope lots of people have a chance to hear this and understand your backstory. I mean, what led for you to go do what you do? All these different things you've done through the career. And like you said, many chapters, and I'm sure there's many more chapters to come. So really, really appreciate you coming in today and sharing your story and giving us some insights about what you see here in our community of San Diego. So that's our show for today. And if you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And most importantly, share the podcast with a friend. That's the best way to help us continue to get the word out to help the conscious capitalism movement of using the influence of business to positively impact our community of San Diego. I'm Jeff Blanton saying, in the meantime, go do what you do. Go do what you do best, where we're all counting on.